Well, let's uh, look to the uh, throne of grace together. Let's look to the Lord in a time of prayer. Well, Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for these beautiful words we've just sung. These beautiful words, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Father, we thank you that there's a fountain of cleansing that's been opened through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to wash away all of our sins and to bring us into your family, to give us hope and to give us eternal life. Oh, Father, thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, we thank you that you're seated on your throne in heaven as we look around at all the unrest in our culture around us and in some places even what, what seems like an unraveling. Father, it grieves us and saddens us, and we're burdened to see righteousness and to see peace exalted. Father, we, we pray that you'll give us wisdom to know how to respond in times like these. You'll give our, our leaders an uncanny wisdom to know what to do. We pray for our country, Lord, and for our lives individually, that somehow you can take what's happening and use it for good. And we know, we know you're the only one who can do that. Father, we, we know this is a hard issue. We know that the ultimate answer for all of our sin problems are only found in Jesus Christ. And we pray that we'll look to Him and rest in Him. So use these times to turn us individually and as a church and as a nation uh, to You in a deeper way. Father, in the midst of all that we see, we thank You for the, the eternal good hope uh, that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we turn to your word, as we open the inerrant-inspired word of God together, we pray that you'll use your word today to strengthen us. The Holy Spirit will be our teacher. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to see all of you uh, here this morning. I want to welcome all, all, of, all of you here, especially those of you that are visiting. Uh, maybe you're visiting here in person. Maybe you're visiting us online, but uh, we're, we're glad you're with us. Thank you for spending uh, this Lord's Day uh, with us. Uh, this is an exciting day for me. It's an exciting day as well uh, for our church as we're beginning our new summer series this morning. Um, I've titled this new series, A More Excellent Way, and uh, we'll be in an exposition for uh, six weeks uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter of the Bible, uh, one of the great uh, best-known chapters in all the Bible. So if you have your Bible here this morning, and I hope you do, uh, take your Bible and turn there with me to uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Uh, what we're going to have here at Faith Bible Church this summer, I guess we could call the summer of love. Kind of going to have our own summer of love here as we go through this chapter together. Um, I've titled this morning's message, uh, The Power of Love. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13 here in just a moment, but just to give you a little uh, overview of it, you'll notice as we read through it, it kind of breaks down into three paragraphs or three stanzas. Uh, the, and these three stanzas kind of give us the, the full view of love we'll be looking at the next few weeks. But you'll notice in a moment as I read, the first three verses are kind of what we might call the priority of love. Then verses 4 through 7 are, are the practices of love or the performance of it. And then verses 8 to 13 are the permanence of love. So let me read uh, this chapter for us. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. 
Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will fully know, just as I have also been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. October 25th, 1999. Um, I remember that day uh, well. We, uh, we watched events unfold that, seem, uh, unfold that seemed to be kind of uh, surreal. Uh, two F-15 uh, jets were, uh, were scrambled and shadowed, a Learjet that had veered off course and lost contact with uh, the air traffic controllers. When the F-15s got up near the plane, they noticed the windows were frosted over and there was no sign of life. It was, it was a ghost flight, if you will. Now, what captured the nation's attention about this uh, so much was that one of the six passengers on board was the reigning U.S. Uh, golf champion, uh, Payne Stewart. Uh, the sad saga unfolded over a period of, of about four hours. Experts on the ground uh, concluded that what had happened is not long after takeoff and when the kind of the autopilot had been engaged, that the plane suffered a sudden uh, cabin decompression, a loss of oxygen that everybody on, on the flight quickly lost consciousness and uh, died soon after that, obviously, from the lack of oxygen. Uh, when the plane uh, finally ran out of fuel, it crashed out in the middle of nowhere um, in South Dakota. And, of course, the tragic irony of that is, is that the plane itself was fully functional. It was full of fuel. It had uh, landing gear that worked. Everything necessary for flight and landing was present. But nothing mattered if oxygen uh, was missing. No matter how great that plane was, no matter how great it looked, no matter how functional it was, no matter how much power it had, one thing was missing, and that was oxygen. And nothing matters if oxygen is missing in an airplane. And of course, you're probably already a little bit ahead of me in this, but there's a spiritual parallel to this in our lives. Nothing else matters in your life and my life is if love is missing. A lack of love in the life of a believer is the spiritual equivalent of an oxygen decompression. No matter how successful we are, how much money we have, how beautiful or handsome we may be, how intelligent or gifted we may be, without love, our life is a ghost flight that's headed uh, for a crash landing. Love is the greatest essential in life. It is the one indispensable thing. Uh, the life of love is the only life that pleases God. Uh, years ago, Skevington Wood, a well-known Bible teacher, put it like this. Where love is present, it doesn't matter what's absent. Where love is absent, it doesn't matter what is present. I mean, everything in your life and in my life hinges on love. And that's the message, really, of 1 Corinthians 13. And it's a message we all need to hear. 
Now, when I planned this series a few months ago, I had no idea how applicable it would be uh, for our lives today. I mean, I think all of us, as we look around, we see a growing lovelessness and lawlessness on full display in our culture. Um, our country and our communities are more polarized and politicized probably uh, than any time since the Civil War. Um, our culture is increasingly callous and cold. Um, a hostile, hateful climate um, is rising in our culture. We all sense it and we see it. Now, we live in, in what we might call a love-scarred world. And it reminds me of what Jesus said about the signs of his coming, about the end of the age. In Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Remember in, in Matthew 24 and verse 12, he says, because of, the, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most people will grow cold. Um, love's going to grow cold and callous, Jesus said. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 said, Mark this, in the last days, perilous times will come. Of course, this whole age we live in is the last days, but G, uh, Paul is saying that um, during this, this period of the last days, it would be punctuated by especially perilous times. And that word perilous there, difficult times, is the same word used in Matthew 8.28 of the demoniacs that Jesus met that lived down in the tombs. It literally means savage or vicious or brutal. Paul is saying here, in the last days, it's going to be punctuated by some periods of time that are savage and vicious and brutal. People will be lovers of themselves, abusive, without love, and brutal. There are many things that you and I can and probably should be doing during these times, and I pray that every one of us will seek and be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in our lives in these times in which we live. But I can say this on the authority of the Bible, nothing is more important for you and for me all the time, but especially at this time, that our lives be marked and motivated by love. Nothing is more important than that. Nothing is more indispensable. Several years ago, I read a book by Phil Riken called Loving the Way Jesus Loves, and I was reminded of those words during this study, and I'm sure you can all identify with this. This is what Phil Riken says. There's nothing I need more in my life than the love of Jesus. I need more of his love for my wife, the woman God has called me to serve until death. I need more of his love for my children and the rest of my extended family. I need more of his love for the church, including the spiritual brothers and sisters it's sometimes hard for me to love. I need more of his love for my neighbors who still need to hear the gospel and for all the lost and lonely people who are close to the heart of God, even when they're far from my thoughts. Everywhere I go and every relationship I have in life, I need more of the love of Jesus. Now, all I say to that is amen. So do I. And so do all of us here. If you don't believe that you need more love, uh, just start reading here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4 and put your own name in there. Mark is patient. Mark is kind. Well, I've already been stabbed in the heart already. I mean, it doesn't take long, does it? We're all less loving than we probably think we are. And we're all a lot less loving than we ought to be. And the people around us, I can assure you, your spouse, your children, uh, your parents, your co-workers are thirsty for love, for real, authentic, godly Christian love. 
And so I'm praying that God will powerfully use his word in 1 Corinthians 13 over these next six weeks to change me and to change all of us into the loving people that God wants us to be. That we'll be more loving than we have ever been. And that we won't be the same people six weeks from now that we are today. And that's what we want God's Word to do in our lives. We want it to be transforming us. We want God's work, Word to do its work in our lives. So I hope you'll join me in that prayer for yourself and your family and for our church. That God will be at work in our lives, making us more loving people. We'll be different six weeks from now than we are now. Now before we get into 1 Corinthians 13, I want to answer a key question. And I'm going to do it very simply and briefly. But why is love so important? And again, we could give a lot of reasons for this, and you could preach several sermons just on that topic. But let me mention just four things quickly. The first one is it's the personal essence of God. In 1 John 4, 8, it says very clearly, God is love. 1 John 4, 16 says God is love. It's the essence of God. God is agape. There's only two things in the Bible that it says God is. God is spirit and God is love. Other attributes are stated differently, but God is love. It's not a quality God possesses. It is the essence of God's being. God is love. If we're followers of Jesus Christ and we're members of God's family, then that essence of God needs to become part of our daily lives. Love is important. It's the essence of who God is. The second reason it's important is it's the priority commandment. It's paramount in the law. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jewish rabbis have found 613 commandments in the law, but they're summarized in two, love God and love other people. 51 times in the New Testament, we're told to love. So it's the priority commandment. It's also the preeminent grace. When you read in in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is, what's the first word? Love. And joy and peace and patience. Love has been called the Mount Everest of Christianity. It's the crowning virtue of Christian character. It's the, the queen of the Christian graces. It's the sum and the summit of Christian duty. And so it encompasses everything that we do. I mean, think about this. Peace is love at rest. Goodness is love in action. Meekness is love and control. All of the fruit of the Spirit really are guided and governed by love. So love is the personal essence of God. It's the priority commandment. It's the preeminent grace. But it's also the proof of discipleship. John John 3.35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, because you have love one for another. The distinguishing mark of a believer is love. It's the acid test of our spiritual life. It's the touchstone of spiritual discipleship. So when God measures an individual believer, when he measures your life or my life, when he measures your marriage or your family, when he measures this church, God puts his tape around the heart, if you will. He measures our love. He measures our love. So love is an astounding priority in your life and my life, in our family and in this church. 
Now, with this backdrop, and again, we could say a lot more about that, but with that backdrop, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're just going to introduce the chapter really this morning and kind of set the table for the next few weeks. Um, I've got three simple points you can see in your outline. Uh, We want to look at the essence of love, the excellence of love, and we'll just kind of begin to touch on that third point, the eminence of love, and we'll pick up there next time. Let's start with the essence of love. Love is a greatly overused word and a greatly misunderstood word. Um, Bartlett's uh, book of quotation lists 1,300 different interpretations of the meaning of love by uh, poets and by philosophers and authors. In fact, it's by far the longest entry. I mean, it's, it's no wonder we're confused. Just think of how we use the word love in our daily lives. Um, I might uh, tell my wife Cheryl one evening, Cheryl, I love you. And then 10 minutes later, I might say, man, I really love this ice cream. And uh, by the way, I had some ice cream last night, and it was good, too. I loved it. Um, But we use the word, we throw it around. I love my wife. I love ice cream. I love this. I love that. We, We use the word so much that we forget oftentimes what the word really means. And 1 Corinthians 13 offers God's view of love. And at the heart of it is this word that all of you know, the word agape. It's found 10 times in this chapter. Now, many of you may know this from other studies, but there are four main Greek words for love. Uh, The first word is the word eros, um, E-R-O-S. We get our English word erotic from this word. Um, Eros was a a physical, sensual, sexual love. It's the love of pleasure and passion. It's it's an appetite love. If you've ever been to uh, the city of Corinth, uh, the city of Corinth lies down there uh, near a, uh, in a gulf near the water, but behind the main city is a huge rock outcropping that's 2,000 feet high. It's the Acropolis of the city. And all the, the ancient Greek cities all had an Acropolis where the, the worship would take place. And the main feature on the Acropolis there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And I had the, I've had the privilege to go up there and hike all over that Acropolis and go find it. It's not marked. You have to go find it. It's a very small temple, actually, much smaller than I thought it would be, the Temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And a thousand prostitutes served that temple, prostitutes and courtesans. And, of course, because of that, the city of Corinth is a place that was literally a swimming in sexual sin. But that's the main love that they focused on in that culture was eros. Now, what's interesting is the word eros never occurs in the Bible. Now, God is not against this kind of love because obviously he created that kind of love too. And it's actually celebrated in a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon. But it's not the focus of the love that we're to experience as believers for one another. So there's the eros love. There's storge is another Greek word. It refers to, to family love, the tenderness of a parent with a child. Uh, there's the word philia. The, 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 uh, the verb is phileo, which refers more to natural affection or the love of companionship or brotherly love. And then there's the word agape, which refers to a commitment to do good to others. Now, something I I found out this week that I didn't realize to this extent, the word agape was a very rare word in uh, the Greek language outside the Bible in that day. It's very, very rarely found. These other words for love were found. So it's almost like in the New Testament, God is taking this rare word from their culture, 
uh, rarely found. And God is using this word and infusing this meaning into it to express the highest form of love. And so the eros love is a sensual love. Storge love is like a sentimental love. Uh, Philea love is a social love. But agape love is a sacrificial love. And so the definition I want to use is kind of our working definition through this study. Agape love is a willingness to sacrifice of ourselves for the highest good of another person. That's agape love. I'm willing to sacrifice myself to help achieve the highest good for another person. So the source of agape love is in the one who's expressing it, not the object of it. God loves us because of who he is, not because of what we are. In other words, it's an act of the will. And it acts in in, uh, uh, sacrifice for others regardless of the cost and regardless of the character of the other person. Now, agape love isn't defined by the culture. It's ultimately defined by the cross. The greatest demonstration of agape love is the cross. And Years ago in my, my reading, I ran across a statement someone made. They called it Calvary love. I, I, to me, that's a great statement, a great definition. It's Calvary love. Um, it's the love that was demonstrated at Calvary when Jesus died on the cross for us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So let me just say this this morning or ask this question. Have you ever received God's love for you in Jesus Christ? That's where love uh, really begins. Someone said it like this. The secret to loving is living loved. You never really understand how to love other people until you live loved. And that is you've experienced God's love for you and received it. So if you've never done that, you can receive the pardon that Jesus purchased for you on the cross right now, right where you sit. You can receive his love that was demonstrated for you at Calvary and dying for you and dying, dying for you and taking the place there on the cross for your sins. And you and I have to welcome that love into our lives. And that's where our life of love begins. Because 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. When we experience his love for the first time as we are loved, then we can live as a loving person to those who are around us. So all of us here want to love. We long to love. But the way that we ultimately can love is being loved by the one who is agape love. So that's the essence of love. The essence of love is sacrificing ourselves for the highest good of another person. We have this agape love as we come into relationship with the one who's loved himself, that is God, by receiving his love in Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing we need to see here is the excellence of love. Now, the main problem at the church at Corinth is, is they lacked love. There was a spirit of arrogance and elitism in the church there. We see this throughout the book. Um, You might want to write this down if you like to take notes. There's three main divisions of the book of 1 Corinthians. The first four chapters is about division, division in the church. Uh, The church had disunity. They were badly out of step with each other. You go back to chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. You know, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They rallied around their favorite leaders. They were a a fragmented, divided church. That's the first four chapters, is a division in the church. Chapters 5 and 6 are disorders in the church. 
You had sexual immorality that was out of control, and rather than grieving over that, the people were prideful and arrogant. I mean, chapter 6, you have people in the church suing one another, taking each other uh, to court. Again, a lack of love. So chapters 1 to 4, divisions in the church. Chapters 5 and 6, disorders in the church. Then in chapter 7, Paul begins to answer questions that the Corinthians had sent to him. Corinthians evidently had sent a letter to Paul with a lot of questions. And so at the very beginning of chapter 7, he says, Now concerning the things that you wrote to me. He's going to deal with a lot of different issues. And one of the issues, obviously, in chapter 7 is marriage and divorce that was happening in the church. Again, lovelessness. Um, chapter 8 through 10, they were misusing their liberty with one another. If you read chapter 11, there were all kinds of abuses at the Lord's Supper, people getting drunk and those who were wealthy eating their good food and leaving out those who were more in need. But finally, we come to chapter 12, and Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts. So all of what's happening, there's evidence of lovelessness. This is a church in conflict and chaos, but the immediate context of chapter 13 is spiritual gifts. The, the lovelessness of the Corinthians had showed up in their use and misuse of spiritual gifts. So chapter 13 is the bridge between chapter 12 and chapter 14 that are both about spiritual gifts. So 1 Corinthians 13 is not a digression or an interruption to the flow of the book. Uh, this chapter wasn't written by Paul just so we'd have something beautiful and eloquent to read at weddings. And it's directly tied to the context of spiritual gifts. Uh, back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says about the Corinthian church, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. So this is a church that was loaded with gifts, but they were lacking in love. They were enamored and preoccupied with spiritual gifts. And they defined spirituality in, term, in, in terms of gifts and assumed that the more spectacular your gift, the more spiritual you were. They kind of liked the, the flashier gifts like speaking in tongues and performing miracles and all of that. And they, they saw those people in kind of a superior spiritual class. So what was going on at Corinth was a big game of kind of spiritual one-upmanship. They turned ministry into a show. And they'd taken the, the tools God had given them to minister to one another and turned them into trophies. So they were missing the essential ingredient of life. They were lacking love at Corinth. So they were big into the gifts of the Spirit, but they weren't so big on the graces of the Spirit. And so that's why chapter 13 is sandwiched in between these two chapters here on spiritual gifts. Because Paul wants them to know as important as spiritual gifts are, they are not enough. And so at the end of chapter 12, notice verse 31, it says, But earnestly desire the greater gifts, but I am showing you a more excellent way. So verse 31 concludes chapter 12, but it's going to introduce or preface chapter 13. Now, one thing I want to mention here in verse 31, some of you may know these terms from, from study of Greek, but even if you just know English, you'll understand what I'm saying here. The first part of verse 31, you'll notice here in the New American Standard, it says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. That's an imperative, earnestly desire the greater gifts. But a lot of translations and a lot of scholars believe 
This should be translated not as an imperative, but an indicative, which means you translate it, you are earnestly desiring the greater gifts. In other words, he's stating what they're doing. And I think that's the better way to translate that. He says, you all are desiring the greater gifts, uh, to be flashy and, and, and for a lot of show. But he says, but let me tell you a more excellent way. You all want the greater gifts, these flashy gifts, but there's a better way. I want to show you a more excellent way, the way of love. And he's going to tell them that the gifts of the Spirit have to be governed by the graces of the Spirit, that love surpasses everything else. It's the priority of life. Someone put it like this years ago, to live or to love is to live, to love not is to live not. That's true. To love is to live and to love not is to live not. Love needs to, to uh, define our being and to direct our doing in our lives each day. Love is more important than my spiritual gifts, my talents, my possessions, uh, my Christian activities and experience. It's the most important aspect of my life as a believer and of your life. That's the excellence of love. Now, I want to just briefly introduce this third point because what I want to do here this morning, after I mention a couple things here, is look at a few practical points of how you and I can become more loving. Because I want to introduce that this morning so you can be thinking about that in the weeks ahead as we go through this study. But let's just uh, touch on verses 1 to 3. And again, we'll pick up in these verses next time. But I call this the eminence of love. The eminence of love. Paul kind of creates here by hyperbole or intentional exaggeration kind of a spiritual superman. Um, speaks the tongues of men and angels, uh, has all prophecy, has all knowledge, all of these things, but doesn't have love. And Paul's point here is, is going to be, what I do is important, but what I am is essential. Paul's highlighting here being overdoing. He's highlighting grace over gifts. He's highlighting character above charisma. And he's saying here, he's going to say in verses 1 to 3, love is so essential, we're nothing without it. Now, again, we'll talk about this next time, but without love in your life and my life, whatever else we have, our life, he's saying, is a big fat zero. That's a challenging thing for you and for me to consider. That's the message there of verses 1 to 3. Now, before we close this morning, I want to get really practical and just talk for a moment about how do you and I become more loving people? I want to become a more loving person. I hope that you do. I'm sure your spouse wants you to, or your children would like for you to. Um, but we're going to talk more about this as we go along, but I want to just give three keys to growing in love every day that you and I can begin to practice today. The first one is you and I need to pursue love. Notice again back in chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, I am showing you a more excellent way. And then look at chapter 14, verse 1. What are the first two words? Pursue love. Notice how this chapter is bookended by, this is a more excellent way, pursue love. Uh, Ephesians 5, 2 says, you and I are to walk in love. Love is our lifetime assignment. You and I are to pursue it. And I think we all want to pursue it. And you say, well, how do I pursue it and have this love become operative in my life? One of the key ways to pursue love is to spend time in fellowship with Jesus Christ, who is love. Jesus Christ is everything that I'm not. 
And the closer I get to him and the more time I spend with him, I get what you might call a love transfer or a love transfusion as I come into contact with him. In fact, many have pointed out that if you take the word love and replace it with Jesus in this passage, you have a beautiful portrait of Jesus. In fact, really, 1 Corinthians 13 is a, is a sketch of the Savior. You could read it like this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He, he does not boast. He's not proud. Jesus is not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always preserves. Jesus never fails. And if that's true of Jesus and love is what I need, then I need to get close to him and fellowship with him so that he can transfer his love into my life to transform me. There's a great sermon. It's a well-known sermon. It was preached in the, early, in the late 1800s by a man named Henry Drummond. And the title of the sermon, you can look it up online if you want. It's called The Greatest Thing in the World. And I have a, an, actually a booklet that's just that entire sermon, and I read it this week. And in the book, Henry Drummond, in this book, The Greatest Thing in the World, he has a, a great illustration in there about a magnet. And he says, you know, a magnet passes its charge into a piece of ordinary iron that's left next to it for a period of time. Over time, that piece of iron sitting next to a magnet will become magnetized. And he says, that's what you and I need to do with Jesus Christ. You and I need to, to get close to him and stay to, next to him long enough that we become magnetized. And he points out that there's no force that's more magnetic than the love of Jesus Christ. But if we fellowship with him through prayer and through reading his word, that his love will take us over and you and I can become magnetized with the love of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't think of anything better than that in life than to become magnetized with his love and become magnetic because we display uh, the agape love of Jesus Christ. But you and I must pursue love. And we pursue love primarily by coming into a, a deeper, richer fellowship with the one who has loved himself, uh, the Lord Jesus. The second thing we need to do is practice love. We need to practice it every day. And love is what we do. It's not how we feel. We're going to see as we get into this chapter later that all these words used for love are verbs. They're not adjectives. They're things that we do. And we need to act in love and practice love every day and every moment of our lives. Look, we're witnessing, as I mentioned earlier, a surging animosity and even a hatred in our culture. And as, as I said earlier, I mean, in some places it looks like things are unraveling. It, it's It's terrible. But there are endless opportunities for you and for me every day watching the news or just looking at our culture to become angry, impatient, hateful, even vengeful people. But there are also limitless opportunities for us to become loving, to display and to put on display the love of Jesus Christ and to stand counter to our culture. We need to walk the way of love. We need to walk this more excellent way, even with people who mistreat us and malign us, and even with people who may consider us to be their enemy. Many of you know the name Martin Niemöller. 
He was a well-known pastor in Germany. Uh, Martin Niemöller was a celebrated Navy commander in the German army, army in World War I. And uh, when Adolf Hitler came to power in the early 30s in Germany, he was actually a friend and a supporter of Hitler until he realized what was happening. And then he became a very outspoken, ardent critic uh, against Hitler and what he was doing. In fact, so much so, um, and, and Niemöller, by the way, became a pastor. He, he was a, a, a famous pastor in Germany at that time. And uh, he was arrested in 1937 and became a personal prisoner of Hitler. Now, if you've ever been to Germany, if you've been in the, in the Munich area, Cheryl and I were there a few years ago and went, out and visited, went over and visited the Dachau concentration camp. And that's the concentration camp where uh, Martin Niemöller was for eight years. And it's hard to imagine being in a place like that eight hours or eight days, let alone eight years' time. And he languished there, and he thought he would never leave there alive. But he said this um, near the end of his time there, it took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his enemies. That's beautiful. God's not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his enemies. And praise God for that because the Bible says, born into this world, we're enemies of God. We're alienated from him. God loved us and he saved us in spite of that. God is love. We have to walk in the sunshine of his love every day and even love those who don't love us and love people who may consider us to be their enemies. And it's daily. We do it day after day after day. There's a, a book by David uh, Jeremiah that I read not long ago, and he says this. This was a really quote that really captured me this week. He's just, he says, just as we learn to walk one step at a time, we learn to love one loving act at a time. We can't become loving people by just doing one gigantic act of love. We learn to love by incorporating love into all the little things we do. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 16, 14 that says, let all you do be done with love. And then, and then uh, Dr. Jeremiah quotes another writer who says this, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that God sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents there, listening to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost going to a committee meeting, giving a, a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. And then Dr. Jeremiah closes with these words, we'd rather just do one big thing and get it over with and maybe get a pat on the back in return. But the life of love is not flashy. It's lived out in small, everyday ways over the course of a lifetime. That's what the Corinthians didn't like about it. It's daily. It's not very flashy. I love that. It's not flashy. Look, you and I, we don't just go out and do one big, gigantic you know, act of love. That'd be great if it was that way. It's 25-cent, 50-cent deposits over a lifetime. We're called to pursue love, but we're called to practice love day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Well, the third thing, and we'll close with this this morning, but we need to pray for love. 
In Philippians 1.9, the Apostle Paul was praying for the Philippians, and he says, This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Paul was praying for a greater love for the Philippian believers. So what I hope we'll do over these next few weeks is we'll join together, all of us, to be praying for more love. You need to be praying for your spouse for more love praying for your children for more love. We need to be praying for our fellow uh, church members for more love. And most of all, we need to be praying for ourselves uh, for more love. Pray 1 Corinthians 13 and, and put your name in it and ask God to make those things that you're reading and praying or to make that real um, in your daily life. I quoted Phil Riken earlier in his book on love. Um, he says this, and I'll close with this. It's kind of a, a prayer, but he says, I invite you to welcome God's love into your life. Confess that you're not the lover you ought to be and ask Jesus to change your heart. Say something like this, Jesus, you're everything I am not. You are pure love and I am only the loveless sinner that you always knew I would be. But in your perfect love, I pray that you would forgive my hateful sins and teach my loveless heart to love the way that you love. It's a great prayer. Uh, that's what I'm going to be praying that the Lord will do in my life and the Lord will be doing in your life and your family and in our church family um, over these next few weeks. Look, our world needs it. Our families need it. This church needs it. God deserves it from us. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now and we thank you that there's hope in the gospel for loveless sinners like us. Oh, Father, the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus has come. He's paid the price for our sins, and if we'll trust him, he'll wash them away. Again, I want to mention, if you're here this morning, you've never done that, trust Jesus. There, there's love for hopeless sinners in the gospel. Come to Jesus and trust in him and take him to be your Savior from sin. And Father, for those of us who know you, as we look around at a culture that's becoming so cold and callous, a love-scarred world that's out there. Father, help us to be counterculture. Help us to have a, a love that's not defined by the culture, but a love that's defined by the cross. Calvary love. A love that's willing to sacrifice of ourselves for the highest good of others. Well, Father, for each one of us here, magnetize us with the love of Jesus as we draw near to Him each day. Help us to become magnetic with the love of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his dear name.